Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And while you're there, have a look at our new guide to visiting our home in Crested Butte and the rest of the Gunnison Valley. It's got everything you need to know about getting here, lodging, the excellent public transit in the area, and more. We've got a link to the article in the show notes, so give that a look and come pay us a visit. Okay, last week on Bikes and Big Ideas, we checked in with Mick Williams of Williams Racing Products on everything he's up to, including what can only be described as the reincarnation of the Honda RN01 downhill bike with its frame-mounted derailleur gearbox. If you haven't checked that episode out yet, you should. But WRP isn't the only new company trying to invent a better derailleur drivetrain, so this week we're talking to Cedric Avalet of Lal Bikes on his very, very cool Supra Drive prototype. This one covers a ton of info about the Supra Drive itself, and we also get into it about gearboxes, high pivot bikes, and a whole bunch more. So let's dive right in. Well, Cedric, thanks for coming on. Great to have you here. How are you today, and where are you today? Hey, David. So I'm doing great today, and I am in Chelsea, Quebec. Right on. And uh, looks like you're in some sort of home office situation. Yep. Yeah, I'm in my parents' basement. I have been working out of here for the past over two and a half years now and uh, planning to move out soon, especially after the, the recent announcement of, of my invention. There are things that are rolling pretty quick and uh, I don't think I'll be here for too much longer. But uh, yeah, I am here. A lot of th- pretty cool stuff developed in basements and garages. And uh, as we'll get into here, I think you've got something pretty impressive on your hands too. So to take it from the top, uh, for folks who might not be familiar, uh, you have just sort of founded and announced LOL Bikes and have a pretty interesting take on reinventing the derailleur, essentially. Let's just start off by having you kind of talk us through what the Supra Drive concept is. Sure. So the Supra Drive, the, the basic concept was to to essentially separate the, the derailleur into, into its two functions. Because conventional rear derailleurs, they have two main functions. One is to tension the chain, right? There's a tension arm that pivots and, and tensions the chain. And the second function is to shift the chain across the different sprockets of the cassette. And the basic idea that I had for the Supra Drive was to separate those two functions and essentially move the chain tensioning function to, uh, to the middle of the bike where it's safe. And the, the way I was able to do that, though, was with the idler, by having an idler pulley. So the, it, the Super Drive, it works with drivetrains where you have an idler pulley, like high pivot bikes. And that, the, the chain routing over the idler pulley gives a room for the tension arm to, to, to be at the middle of the bike there and work the way it does on the Super Drive. So we'll have a bunch of photos in the show notes for people to check this out. It'll definitely help to have some illustrations there. But yeah, in short, basically, you've made a high pivot bike with an idler pulley and then tucked the tension pulley into a, a separate arm that sits behind the cranks essentially. And then that allows the derailleur to be a whole lot more compact and it's actually situated between the seat and chain stays on the swing arm. And so it's up out of the way and isn't sort of vulnerable to being smashed on stuff in the same way that a derailleur on a conventional bike is. And sort of like you said, you've effectively just split the derailleur into two separate parts to do the two separate functions that a sort of conventional derailleur does. And so beyond moving the derailleur up out of the way a bit, sort of what was the uh, 
thinking behind this improvement and where did the idea come from in the first place? Oh, it's it's purely just from the pain in the butt of of having derailers fail and you know derail hangers bend and and break and and uh, all those all those fun things that uh, conventional derailers make people have um, like experiences. So yeah, it's it's purely out of that. Like throughout my life, I've I've had a few experiences with with derailers failing, but like I've also generally been aware of a lot of other people having not a good time with uh, conventional rear derailers. And so it's, it's purely born out of a desire to solve that problem, the, 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 the super drive. And yeah, like you were saying, like by, by moving that t- chain tensioning functionality to the middle of the bike, the, the derailers tucked up. So the derailleur is, is, is way uh, smaller. Um, it's quite a bit more compact. It's also like really well braced. Um, so it's, it's not like a long lever that's, that's like uh, levering one little bolt. Like there's two bolts. So it's really well, uh, the derailleur is really well mounted to the frame. And the derailleur is also far from the ground, right? It's like super far from the ground compared to conventional rear derailleurs. And uh, so effectively, when you have all those things, you, 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 all those characteristics, the derailleur it just becomes really reliable. Like it's, it's basically the, the, the toughest derailleur in the world. That's how I describe it now. And, um, and so, th- yeah, the, uh, the idea behind the, the invention is purely out of, that, out of making, making a reliable derailleur and solving the problem of derailleurs breaking. It's sort of been an interesting thing in the bike world where, you know, we've had derailers on mountain bikes pretty much as long as mountain bikes have been a thing got rid of front derailers a while ago for a variety of reasons but uh it's also seemed like there's been a certain contingent of folks out there who have been really pushing for gearbox bikes to become a thing and then you keep hearing like oh that you know they're on the horizon they're just gonna come into their own and take off and we've been hearing that for an awfully long time now and it still hasn't really happened and I'd be curious for your take on why that is and what the advantages are of the super drive over a gearbox instead of uh, a conventional derailleur drive train. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Yeah, there, there's that that everlasting uh, crowd on the Internet that's that's always commenting on articles saying, where is where is the gearbox? When is it coming? And uh, so you might wonder why hasn't it come yet? Is it like a conspiracy or something? Well, my understanding is that it's not a conspiracy um, by the de- derailleur cabal, as some people call it. It's uh, there's actual reasons, technical reasons for it. Um, my understanding of the whole thing is that one one big drawback with gearboxes, like for example, a big a really great example for for mountain bikes is a pinion gearbox. Um, so you have more drag. So you have um, you generally have quite a bit more more friction uh, or drag in the drivetrain, and so for a certain amount of of energy that you're putting into the pedals, you're getting less energy out at the rear wheel, right? Um, and so there's just more energy lost in the in the drivetrain with the the gearboxes, and people uh, aren't too fond of having their energy energy wasted. Um, so so that's one reason. Um, another thing is. A big one is, is that uh, the gearboxes, like for example, the pinion gearboxes, they weigh quite a bit, and um, like in general, they can add around 1.5 kilos to a bike, uh, a pinion gearbox, which is quite a bit, right? That's 1,500 grams to a bike, and so people also don't like that too much. And a another reason is that they don't shift super well under load. The gearboxes, like especially when you compare it to like the latest and greatest Shimano chains and cassettes, which shift incredibly well under load. The gearboxes, um, like you really have to let off the gas on uh, on at least some shifts. Um, and um, at the same time, though, like to give them credit, like gearboxes, it's really cool how you you have you know of course like it solves the problem of drillers breaking and and uh, 
and you have you can have like a better dishing of your rear wheel and you have reduced like really reduced unsprung mass so it's like really cool advantages but those in in solving the the problem of the derailleur braking it it introduced these significant disadvantages and what i've done with the the super drive if i've solved is i've solved the problem of derailleur braking without introducing significant disadvantages yeah that's sort of been my experience with gearboxes too i haven't ridden opinion a huge amount but i spent a little bit of time on one and the shifting performance under load is a significant downside in my book i'm also not a huge fan of the grip shift that they use currently there i know there are some you can you can imagine some ways around that i mean the the limitation of the pinion is that basically it requires two cables to pull in both directions rather than letting the spring in the derailleur do the uh, upshifting for uh, and so mm-hmm. um, yeah but it's i mean that seems like a really obvious uh place to potentially just go electric you know have a an electric shifter and you you can very readily imagine how they would address that particular uh gripe of mine with just a bit of a tweak but even if you solve the shifting under load and you have a trigger shifter you still got the weight and efficiency drawbacks absolutely yeah those those are still definitely there and the fact that you have a pretty significant uh, sort of increase in the um, amount of lag before the freewheel engages too. The, uh, the pinion has the freewheel in the crank and uh, doesn't engage particularly quickly, which really kind of, I think, depends on what sort of riding you're doing, how big a deal that is. And it's going to be most pronounced for people who are doing a lot of technical stair-steppy climbing where you're having to ratchet pedals and what have you, which honestly is not something that I do a whole ton of personally for the most part. And so I could live with it, but it is uh, something that's not going to be for everyone. So to circle back to the Supra Drive, though, tell us sort of, you know, you said you've mitigated most of the disadvantages of the gearbox and uh well improving derailleur durability but what kind of weight comparison would you say there is to a conventional derailleur drivetrain for example and sort of in your estimation are there any other particular disadvantages that it introduces beyond the sort of obvious uh requirement for a frame that is fairly specifically designed around the system yeah good question the super drive it adds it, it will probably add about 100 to 200 grams over other high pivot bikes. So that's the whole, that's the whole bike. Like your bike will weigh around, around hundred to 200 grams more. But the thing is that weight is added at the middle of the bike and it's all sprung weight. So it's all weight that doesn't move with the suspension when your suspension is, is absorbing bumps. And, um, not only is like that weight at the, the, it's not only is that extra weight sprung weight, but you actually have a reduction in the unsprung weight for the super drive. So compared to, for example, a, a drivetrain with a Shimano XT rear derailleur, you might have around 130 grams, roughly speaking, around 130 grams less uh, unsprung weight. So that by, by reducing that unsprung weight, there's, there's less, um, like m- weight or mass that needs to move for your rear wheel to move and absorb bumps. So your, your suspension ends up performing better. So the super drive, you have that slight increase in weight, but you also have, a, a uh, you also have an, a, a, a decrease in, in unsprung weight, which makes the suspension perform better. So it's, it's really not a significant, uh, uh factor. I, I don't think, um, for or against the super drive. Yeah, that's quite modest. And as we've been saying quite a bit on blister of late, we're sort of of the opinion that, relatively small gains in weight are by and large not too big a deal on sort of 
trail and enduro sorts of bikes, you know, cross country race bikes are a whole other ball game. But for the types of riding that most people are doing, a couple hundred grams is not going to be super noticeable, frankly. And uh, that seems like a, a very modest increase and really not a big deal at all to me. Yeah. And you're also worth noting that bikes, they'll, they'll feel quite a bit heavier if you're, if your drivetrain blows up and you have to walk home. So, uh, <laughs> so the super drive can, can end up feeling quite a bit lighter, uh, in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Another point though, that, that, that you brought up there is, uh, is about the, the, uh, the need for the frame to be designed around the super drive. And that is, that is a big factor, right? So the, you can't slap a super drive on any bike frame. Um, you really need to design the, the frame from the get-go to use the drivetrain, to use the super drive. And it's not that you're going to have worse frames. It's just that the frame needs to be different. Like it, it, um, that, that work needs to be done to, for, the, for the bike uh, to, be, to use the super drive. And, um, and I'm, so fortunately, I'm working... Well, I, at the time of my announcement, I was working with one major mountain bike company for them to design a frame that'll use the super drive. But now I'm working with uh, with several bike companies, um, and it's it's super interesting and fun to be working with them while they're they're figuring out the possible suspension systems that could work well with the uh, the position of the the idler pulley and, and the super drive and just the drivetrain in, in general. Because um, yeah, so so the the you might people might be wondering, well, why why does it need to be why does the frame need to be designed around the drivetrain? Like, there's several factors. Like, there's the position of the derailleur, the way the derailleur is mounted. There's where the chain goes. Like, the, the chain goes in a completely different place uh, in the rear end of the bike there than uh, than with with uh, conventional derailleur drivetrains. And then there's also the position of the idler pulley. So, with the the super drive for the tension arm to have enough range of motion. Actually, I should step back. So, for the for the super drive to have a wide range cassette. The tension arm needs to have a wide range of motion. So the tension arm the, that pivots around the bottom bracket axis, it needs to have a pretty big range of motion to handle f- for the drivetrain to work with the wide range cassette. And for the for the tension arm to have a wide range of motion, the front portion of chain, so the, the section of chain that goes from the chain ring to the idler pulley, that section of chain needs to be far enough forward to allow for that range of motion of the tensioner arm. And in the so the second prototype bike. The uh, the the um, the idler pulley is a couple centimeters forward from the bottom bracket axis, and, and the second prototype bike is the one that I showed in the announcement of the super drive. So that's if ever anybody looks online for photos, that's what they'll see. It's a couple centimeters forward from the bottom bracket axis, but that's an eleven speed ten to forty five uh, tooth uh, cassette, and it's basically a Shimano twelve speed cassette. But I, I removed the fifty one tooth sprocket because at the time I was like, ah, that's enough. But I since realized that people really like the big cassettes. So I've since developed a full 12-speed version that has a 10 to 51 tooth cassette. And to make that work, though, I, need to, I needed to give the tension arm even more range of motion. So I, I moved the idler pulley uh, even farther forward than, than where it is on the, the second prototype bike. And so, yeah, there's, there's all these factors that, that together mean that the frame really just has to be designed, uh, designed around the drivetrain. Again, we'll have a bunch of photos of the prototype bike and the super drive in the show notes here for people to check out. But basically what you're describing is just the the tension arm needs to swing fairly far forward and up in the highest gears, which is to say the smallest cassette gears in order to maintain chain tension. And so you just need to make room for that, which will make a lot more sense, I think, for people who are looking at some photos. But once you've seen what the bike looks like, it's pretty straightforward. So – Let's talk about the prototype bike itself a little bit here. So you mentioned that this is the second prototype now. Tell us a little bit about 
the rest of the design of the bike in terms of suspension travel and sort of intended use and all that. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I don't think that was really covered anyway because everybody is so focused on the drive chain. Like, holy crap, what is that thing at the back of the bike? Nobody really asked like, what, what suspension system is that? Or, you know, those kinds of questions. How much travel is there? So, yeah, I could, I'd be happy to, to talk about that. Um, the, the second prototype bike that's shown in the announcement has 115 millimeters of travel up front, has 125 in the rear. And um, my, my thinking there is that it's high pivot. So the, so the, the suspension, the suspension will perform better by default compared to a non high pivot bike. And my idea is that, well, I, I really like having bikes that are responsive and, and playful. So my idea is that if I have a little bit less travel than usual at the rear end, you'd still have good bump absorption because it's high pivot, but then you'd have a more responsive bike because of the reduced travel. And that, that's the case for the second prototype bike. It's a super playful, poppy, fun bike. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of like the 150, 130 uh, travel combination for high pivot bikes. Like the Forbidden Druid is an example of that. The Forbidden Druid has 150 in the front, 130 in the rear. And um, But the Supra Drive, the suspension system, yeah, so it's a, it's a steel frame that I designed and, and welded and figured out the kinematics for. And the, so it's single pivot and the, the, uh, the linkage driven shock. So the, the, the shock is driven by a linkage, which that's the same idea, as, again, going back to the Forbidden Druid. So that's also a single pivot bike with the, the, sh- the shock being driven by a linkage. But the, the second prototype bike is kind of an interesting feature is that the idler pulley is not mounted to the swing arm like it would be on the Forbidden bikes or the way it is on others like the, the Deviate Highlander, for example. The, you don't have the, the main pivot and then, the, and then the, uh, the idler pulley mounted to the, swing, to the swing arm just behind the main pivot. What you actually have for the second prototype bike is the the idler pulley is is connected to the rocker arm that drives the shock. So when you compress the suspension and the shock gets gets uh, compressed, the idler pulley moves in the opposite direction. Actually, uh, it moves upward while the shock gets compressed downward because um, the, the the shock is mounted to the opposite end of the rocker arm than the idler pulley, and that upward motion of the idler pulley is a key factor in determining the anti squat of the bike. So that's how I get uh, with the idler pulley kind of far forward in front of the main pivot on my second prototype bike. I still have great anti-squat. It's because of, uh, of, of the idler pulley being on the rocker arm and not, for example, directly connected to the front triangle. And uh, yeah, so it's a pretty unusual and interesting suspension system. Yeah, I mean, you've gone for kind of a mid-shortish travel trail bike with the particular prototype. But um, more generally speaking, what sorts of bikes do you think the system would be suited for you know if you had a full brand with a you know the most complete lineup you could imagine with the bike what sort of applications would it fit oh well something i should point out though is that like although yeah there's that interesting and unusual setup with where the other police mounted on the second prototype bike by no means is that the only suspension system that you can have the super drive on like um, actually with the idler pulley having been moved forward for the 12 speed version of the drivetrain, it's actually not even that, uh, ideal of a suspension system anymore. And I've now I'm looking at others that are other systems that are more promising and that are also more conventional with this, the idler pulley connected to the swing arm. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's all kinds of possibilities over frame design, uh, with the, with the, the super drive. It's just, it's just different than what has happened before than the, the types of systems, uh, suspension systems that have been used before. It's just uh, unexplored territory. And, um, but in terms of the, the types of bikes that you could put the super drive on, I see it being on, on practically like the vast majority of, uh, of mountain bikes. So I think for all mountain bikes, enduro bikes, downhill bikes, it makes a lot of sense. Like you get very little drawbacks in exchange for a super reliable drivetrain. 
and also reduce unsprung mass and the ability to put your bike down on the drive side and the chain getting less contaminated by dirt from dangling downward. So you get all these advantages, but the main one being the, the drivetrain being reliable. You get all these advantages in exchange for very little disadvantages. And uh, it's only when you go down to maybe the, uh, the, the like XC bikes, you know, the marathon bikes or XC race bikes where the slight increase in weight and the possible increase in drag, um, become a factor that might make those people want to have a conventional derailleur drivetrain. And, um, about drag, I don't, so I know that, uh, this is a whole topic, um, uh, in itself and with the super drive, I'm confident that it's more efficient than gearboxes. It's significantly more efficient than gearboxes. And it's also more efficient than other high pivot bikes. And, um, the comparison with other high pivot bikes, I can say that um, because the the pulleys are bigger, so the either pulley and the, also the the two lower pulleys, right? So the the the, the two pulleys that, that would normally be on the derailleur, there's one pulley the derailleur and the super drive, and one pulley the tension arm. So those two pulleys are bigger on the super drive, but also the, like I said, the either pulley is bigger, so that improves efficiency. Um, and then you also have the uh, a system the the chain tensioner has a has a system that produces approximately constant chain tension in all gears. Whereas you, I can dive into that later, but that you really don't have that with conventional derailleur drivetrains. So you have those two factors. Um, and then there's, there's additional factors, um, that, that come into play that improve the efficiency of the super drive. And with all those things in mind, I can confidently say the super drive is more efficient than other high pivot bikes. It's especially more efficient than other high pivot bikes that have a lower chain guide roller, like the, the forbidden, uh, druid and forbidden dreadnought. But in general, like all of the high pivot bikes, I can confidently say it's more efficient compared to Conventional derailleur drivetrains that don't have an idler pulley, I simply don't know how the efficiency of the super drive compares. Like with all those theoretical considerations of what I've designed into the super drive to improve efficiency, I can't theoretically deduce uh, how it compares with conventional derailleur drivetrains that don't have an idler pulley. And what I'm planning to do really soon is to have the efficiency measured. Um, I want it to be measured by a third party so people can really trust the numbers. But at the same time, I, I want to build a, 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 a rig, um, an efficiency test rig uh, in-house in the, the LAL company uh, to, to measure the efficiency. And I'll make all that, that data really public. Um, I think the public should, in general, have a, a lot more data available to them about the efficiency of mountain bike and bike drivetrains in general. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to measure the efficiency. And at that point, I'll be able to answer the question more accurately with regard to the, 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 the more XC side of the spectrum of whether I think the, how much I, I think the super drive makes sense for those, those kinds of bikes. But I think the vast majority of mountain bikers are better off with the super drive. Well, lots to dig into there. Uh, I guess to sort of think about the efficiency side of it just a little bit. Uh, I've been testing a, variety of high pivot enduro bikes this year uh the our review of the forbidden dreadnoughts already up on the site people can check that out and we'll throw a link into the show notes and then i'm currently spending time on both the cannondale jekyll and the norco range basically my take right now is that there's well actually there's kind of sort of a substantial range not to no pun intended about of uh how efficient the drivetrains on even those different bikes feel. The Cannondale is pretty clearly the most efficient pedaling over all of the three. The uh, Dreadnought, I think, is reasonably good from a sort of suspension perspective in terms of bob and what have you. But then, especially with the lower chain guide idler, there's quite a bit of drag in the drivetrain itself, especially once the chain starts to get a bit dirty. 
uh, if or a little bit behind on, on lube. Um, that was one thing that actually really stood out about that bike was that the little bit of extra drag was not super noticeable with a clean, well lubed chain, but it deteriorated quite a bit more quickly than most bikes do once things did start to get a little bit dirty. And then the range feels like it is maybe kind of middle of the road in terms of drivetrain drag, but it's a little bit hard to decouple on that bike because it isn't super efficient just in terms of suspension movement. Right. I was just going to ask, how did you notice differences in, in suspension, Bob? Yeah, the range is pretty notably inefficient on that front and is also substantially heavier than the other two by a pretty big margin. And so um, it's really impressive on the way back down, but uh, is not a strong climber by any stretch. So I guess all of that is to say that it's not quite so straightforward as going oh it's a high pivot bike therefore there's x amount more drag or whatever you know the the devil kind of is in the details on that and so we'll be curious to see more from this but uh i don't it's hard to know exactly how the super drive is going to stack up just from from looking at the design you make a good point that anti-squat is an additional factor to consider and that's a really important one right um and with high pivot bikes you can have just as much anti-squat as non-high pivot bikes um, actually you can, you can have a lot of anti-squat and it's nice because you don't have as much of the pedal kickback disadvantage. So if you have a high pivot bike with a, with a whack load of anti-squat, you won't get as much of that feedback at, at the pedals. Um, cause they just inherently have less pedal kickback and the, the, yeah, the forbidden, the forbidden bikes, they have quite a bit more anti-squat than the, the Norco range. That's a, that's a really good point that you bring up there. I actually like, mo- like created some rough models of those to, to confirm and, and check the anti-squat numbers. And yeah, the range really isn't too good in that department. Um, and the, for the super drive, so, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the next, yeah, so I've been, I've been playing with some, some suspension systems, um, some of them, some of them, some of which I'm discussing with the frame companies I'm collaborating with where the anti-squat is on par with say the Ibis or, or Yeti or Santa Cruz bikes, which are known to pedal really well. Um, and so if you have, you have the same anti-squat, you know, that's, uh, compared to bikes that pedal well, that's, that's a, that's a pretty good sign. And sort of to circle back to what you said a couple questions ago, sort of just about suspension layouts, do I have it right that basically the whole system is going to require a, well, an idler pulley, which then generally speaking would necessitate a high pivot layout for suspension kinematics reasons, but there's a fair bit of flexibility in terms of the details of how you go about laying that out. Like what you were talking about before with the idler being mounted on the rocker link, for example, there are a variety of ways that you could implement those, some of those finer points, but you are looking at a high pivot idler bike in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as we're seeing high pivot bikes are having a little bit of a moment and uh, we're seeing more and more, especially trail and enduro bikes come out with the layout or versions of that layout, I should say, really, after, you know, it mostly being relocated to DH bikes as late. And, well, like I said, I've been testing a couple, have a couple more theoretically coming pretty soon. So uh, we'll have a whole lot more on a variety of high pivot bikes up on Blister before too long here. But I guess I wanted to circle back now. We've sort of gone through a pretty good rundown of a lot of stuff about the super drive and the prototype that you have put together for it but when did the overall concept kind of first originate and how did you go about the development to get to where we are right now 
The, the original idea happened in March of 2019. I was actually, so I'm in, I'm in Chelsea, Quebec, which is just a bit north of Ottawa, and we get several months of a lot of snow. Uh, so fat biking is the biking thing to do uh, in the winter, along with, you know, pond hockey and all that. Um, but so, I, yeah, I fat bike a whole bunch in the winter. And in March of 2019, we were still in the thick of the fat biking season. So I was out for a fat biking ride, and at some point, it was a sunny day. So at one point I just took a break and I was just like hanging out in the sun and, and, um, and just staring at my fat bikes drivetrain. And I was just like staring it down and thinking super hard. And, um, at that point it had been several weeks that I had been thinking pretty hard about the derailleur problem and trying to brainstorm, uh, ideas. And well, in the <laughs> broad, more broadly speaking, um, I actually have been thinking about the problem since I was like, uh, I don't know, maybe around 13, 14 years old in high school. Um, but I, yeah, so it was only a few weeks before March of, 20, March of 2019 when I had like gone, came back to the, the, the problem and had been brainstorming really hard. And so, yeah, I was, I was out there taking a break in the woods, staring at my fat bike drivetrain. And then the idea just hit me and uh, I got super excited and, um, but it's, it's a funny state, right? Cause you're like super excited. You're like, Oh, this is an amazing idea. But then you're like, would it work though? So, so you're kind of teetering between like wanting to yell of, of, of excitement and then, and, but then you're the engineer and you is like trying to think of why it might not work. Um, <laughs> like t- going back and forth between, between those two states of mind. And so I, yeah, I, I biked home really fast. Um, and, uh, yeah, did some, some 2d modeling to check that, you know, theoretically that the chain lines would work out with the high, with the high pivot, with the idler pulley. And, uh, and then I built a prototype drivetrain and it only took me about a week to put that together. I, uh, I did a pretty basic design of the chain tensioner and I 3d printed that. And then I, I took a SRAM, I think it was an X9 derailleur and some, some aviation pliers and just cut the, the, the tensioner arm off. And, uh, and then I, I took an old broken, uh, free body from a neighbor, a mountain biking neighbor and, uh, and just put one cassette sprocket on it, you know, from those old cassettes where you have all, all the sprockets separated there. So I just put one cassette sprocket on that free body and, and I bolted that to this, this wooden frame. Um, and I had these 3d printed mounts to hold the hub and, uh, and yeah, I tested the drivetrain at that point. And it only, sh- it only shifted in a few years, that initial prototype drivetrain, but that was enough for me to know that the idea would work. Um, would I would probably work. <laughs> it's highly likely that it would work at that point. So I was I was pretty stoked then. Um, and the next step was to was to really test it on a bike uh, to build a bike to to really try out the drivetrain. And at that point, I started working towards designing uh, a my first prototype bike. And at that point, I had never fully done a three D design of a bike before. So I just figured that out on the fly. I had also never built a bike before, be it a hardtail or full suspension, but uh, I learned about all of that. And um, I, I've, I've been working on this project full time since uh, since I had the idea, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, so I've I've been able to really spend the time to, to learn these, climb these learning curves. And so I figured out how to, how to make the full susp- the initial full suspension frame. And um, it was it was more simple than my second prototype bike. So it was non-linkage driven, single pivot. So uh, kind of like the orange bikes, you know, where the swing arm is directly driving the shock. So it was, it was quite a bit more simple and also had uh, an 11 to 36 to nine speed cassette. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I built that first prototype bike and, um, and then, yeah, not long after having built that, well, all along there, I was making significant, um, progress on the design and improvements of the derailleur and chain tensioner because the, the derailleur I, I designed and, and built myself as well. And of course the chain tensioner as well. And, um, but yeah, and then the, the following, 
season, I, I built a design and built the the second prototype bike, which has a wide range cassette. Wow. So that that's awfully impressive. And so and I guess doing the math, you've been working on this full time for what going on three years now, I suppose. Yeah, it's like two years, eight months, I think now at this point. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> that's a fair bit. Yeah. And, you know, you said you hadn't designed a frame or built a bike before. What was the process of figuring that all like? And just where did you build out the shop space to do this? How did you how did you go about uh, figuring out all of everything you needed to do to make that happen? Well, yeah, fortunately, in this day and age, we have the Internet, which is a damn cool thing. And uh, you can learn quite a bit from it, as people know. And I, so I learned a lot about the frame building from, from the internet. I, there's like, there's YouTube channels where they, where they have videos about frame building. There's YouTube channels that are focused on TIG welding. And I just like studied the crap out of those videos and, and just, uh, especially the TIG welding ones, cause that's not an easy thing to learn. Um, and then, uh, and a lot of the things I had to just figure out from scratch, like the design of the derailleur, there's no like instruction manual out there on how to design a derailleur. So I just, I <laughs> just, uh, figured that one out. And, um, and, Another thing is kinematics. Kinematics I had been learning about since I was a teenager. Like I tinkered quite a bit when I was younger and when I was in high school uh, with suspension designs. Um, but yeah, kinematics, not too hard to learn. 3D printing, also not too hard to learn. But yeah, so, some things are harder to learn than others. But uh, yeah, and, and in general, I just, yeah, I just kind of figured it out. Um, yeah, and, and before, before the whole project, I, uh, so I, I did study mechanical engineering for my undergrad and I did do a master's in engineering physics. And it was only if I had only been done my master's for a few months at the time when I started the project. So, um, so like I did have, you know, like I wasn't starting from complete scratch of like ignorance here. Um, like I had done a bunch of fabrication work and especially in my, well, in both my undergrad and, and my master's, I did some, I learned quite a bit of the basics of machining, things like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in terms of the fabrication work for this, for this project, like right beside me here, I have a little desktop five axis CNC machine. So some parts of the drivetrain are, are machined with that thing. And, um, and then I have a 3d printer in the other room and, uh, and then there's another, uh, about another room that's a bit colder where it's like a mini bike shop where I do bike main and stuff. And I also have all my welding equipment in there. So I have a, a TIG welder and a frame fixture for holding all the tubes while they're welded together. I have all that in that other room. And this is all in my parents' basement, by the way. So they're just like super generous and just like letting me take over the basement. Um, and then I have a neighbor who's a mountain biker, uh, Brad, he's just like super cool guy. And, uh, he has a really cool setup with, uh, quite a few metalworking tools on like one level of the garage and the second level is all woodworking stuff. And so the, the metalworking stuff, he's got a manual mill, a manual lathe, a horizontal bandsaw, and he lets me use those all I want. He actually gave, like I was bugging him so much about going and using his, his tools in his garage that at one point he was like, okay, I'll just give you a key to the garage here. So, so he gave that to me and, I, and now I go whenever I want and just use his, his mill and lathe, which is super helpful. Um, and, uh, and then there's in the, at the University of Ottawa, where I did my undergrad, there's a student machine shop. I spent quite a bit of time there using their machines. And then in Ottawa, there's a place called, it's like a startup incubator, startup support place with a prototyping shop. And uh, and in that prototyping shop, they have a big water jet cutter. So I also use that water jet cutter quite a bit for making some frame parts. And uh, yeah, so I got sort of all these things spread out all over, um, a lot of them being uh, in my parents' basement and some at my neighbor's place. Where I've uh, that I've used for making both the drivetrain stuff and the uh, the drivetrain parts and the frames. 
Well, yeah, that's a pretty impressive setup and just kind of a, a good assortment of things at your disposal to work with. And someone who's got a couple of CAD models of frames that I designed years ago kicking around on a computer somewhere that have never gotten any farther than that. Uh, I'm impressed at just taking the dive and actually getting the thing built. So on that note, I mean, you've been referring to the drivetrain as the super drive and the company as law bikes. What is next from here? I know you already said that you've been working with a couple of different existing frame manufacturers on building bikes around the system. Is it right to say that your intent is basically to manufacture the specific components of the drivetrain and then uh, work with frame manufacturers on building the bikes to go with it? Or are you intending to build frames yourself as well? How does, what's, what are the next steps basically? Right. Now the, the plan that I have, so I'm not, so some, some inventors, they'll take the approach of, of inventing something, they go and get it patented and then they just try to license it to big companies. I'm a little bit unusual in that I'm also really interested in manufacturing. And, and so I'm actually planning to, uh, to, to, well, the, the Lal company, the Lal bikes company, I'm planning to manufacture the derailleur and chain tension and either pulley and maybe other parts, uh, in house, um, or, or locally in general, uh, in Canada. Eventually I might also set up a manufacturing operation in, in Europe, uh, for example, because the, the general idea is that I, I think it makes a lot of sense for the manufacturing to be not only close to where the engineering happens, but really importantly, close to where people, where, where mountain bikers are. Right. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to, to ship things halfway around the world, um, especially in this day and age with the, 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 the climate crisis. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm really keen about starting a, a, a manufacturing operation and, and making those drivetrain parts. And I don't want it to be like one of those locally made things where it's super expensive and only accessible to the, uh, to the uh, quite wealthy people. Um, and so I'm really keen about making it a big operation so that there's economy of scale and also just being really smart about how we do things so that we can drive the cost down and uh, make the, the prices as competitive as possible th- with overseas parts while, while still having all the benefits of the local manufacturing. To read between the lines, I guess, so you're not envisioning making the frames yourself, though, that you're docking the derailleur and chain tensioner and idler pulley, mostly the sort of specific parts to the drivetrain. And while we're on the subject, actually, what is the shifter compatibility with the derailleur you're using? And how about cassettes and chains and all the rest of that? Uh, how many of the parts of the system are proprietary versus using off-the-shelf bits? The drivetrain uses a, a off-the-shelf hub, cassette, chain, shifter, bottom bracket, and crank. So all these, all these drivetrain parts are, are off-the-shelf. You know, it's like Shimano or whatever. Like the, the, for the 12-speed drivetrain, it's a 12-speed 10 to 51 tooth uh, Shimano cassette and a 12-speed chain. A couple unusual, like a couple unusual things is that the well, at least for the 12-speed drivetrain right now, the it's probably going to be super boost in the rear, and um, that's generally for improving for like decreasing the the cross chaining um, to decrease wear and drag. So um, in the in the low gears, so that's an unusual thing, but it's still off the shelf. Like it's still readily available, even though it's super boost. And then the, uh, the bottom bracket is T47, which is becoming increasingly popular, but, uh, it's still not nearly as common as BSA threaded. So, but, uh, yeah, T47 is also threaded. It's, it's just a bit different. Um, 
and that just works better with the chain tensioner of the Super Drive. So those are a couple of, of unusual details, but still, all those parts are off the shelf. And um, so the parts that I that are really new are the idler pulley and uh, <clears throat> and derailleur and chain tensioner. And that's those are what I'm I'm going to focus on for for my manufacturing and the frame. Yeah, so of course the frame needs to be designed around the drivetrain. And I'm uh, yeah, so I'm working with with bike companies for them to develop frames to use the drivetrain. And um, and yeah, so that's that's not going to be something that that I want to handle in the near future at all. Like eventually if there's nobody that's making a f- frame quite the way I'd want one, what the way I'd want it, uh, you know, I might go the approach of, of, uh, of, of developing and offering a frame. Um, just, just to like show an example really, but I, I don't think that'll happen. I think that there's the, especially with the collaboration that I'm experiencing with bike companies right now, I think there's going to be some great offerings for frames. And, uh, so I think my company is just going to be really focused on, on the drivetrain parts and just trying to, to do a great job of that and making the drivetrain part, parts perform super well and be really durable, um, and, uh, as affordable as possible. Yeah. That all makes sense. Sort of not trying to bite off more than you can chew, I guess. And as far as the shifter goes, are you using, uh, Shimano for that as well currently? Yeah. It's a Shimano 12 speed shifter for the, the 12 speed drivetrain and 11 speed for the 11 speed drivetrain. Yeah. And as far as sort of, I know it's early days right now, but if you had to guess, what would your estimate be for when someone might be able to actually go out and buy a super drive bike? Ooh, yeah, that's a tough one. There's a lot of variables at play and I'm working very hard at trying to make things happen as fast as possible, especially after the reaction, the public reaction that I just experienced. Like there's a lot of people who are super stoked about this drivetrain and who want a bike now. Uh, and so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to make things happen as fast as possible, but I think optimistically by 2023, by the season of, uh, summer 2023, there should be offerings with the super drive. Um, there won't be a ton of offerings probably, but some initial offerings, that's, that's the timeline that I'm aiming for right now. That honestly seems pretty quick that, uh, you know, these developments take a while. And so that would be pretty cool. And we're really excited to see where this goes from here on the subject of the names. Actually, we haven't really touched on that yet, but, uh, where did the super drive and Lyle bike names come from? Yeah. So the, the super drive well, the, uh, the, the word, um, super, it's actually a, a word in a language. It's specifically the, the, the Esperanto language. And, uh, what super means is above. And, it, you know, that refers to the, the, the super drive just being uh, elevated, right? Like there's more ground clearance. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's above conventional derailleur drivetrains and, Another another name uh, with a bit of an interesting story is is Lal. So the company Lal L A L. That's uh, that's named after Pierre Lalama, who's a French guy who had the idea way back in the 1800s. He had the idea of putting a crank on the front wheel of uh, of the bikes that at the time were essentially push bikes. So like everybody was cruising around on these push bikes, and he had the idea of putting a, a pedal crank attached to the front wheel. And uh, so he effectively invented the bicycle because uh, you kind of need that for it to really be called a, a bicycle and um yeah he's a pretty pretty cool guy uh and and um i have quite a bit of respect for uh, for pierre Lallemand and just like inventors in general like i'm um i'm st- <laughs> i'm standing on the shoulder of, of quite a few people who've had a lot of brilliant ideas and by naming my company after pierre Lallemand, i just kind of i want to honor all those people right and say that like uh, um you know, collectively we can, we can, we can, uh, we can get far with, with inventions, but, uh, it doesn't happen alone. 
I like that. And this does seem like sort of a pretty major step forward in derailleur drivetrain that has fundamentally not changed all that much in quite a long time on bikes. You know, obviously there's been a great deal of refinement that's gone into them and they work far better than they ever have, but the overall concept hasn't changed in a long time. And well, at least until here. So that's pretty cool and pretty exciting. And I guess to wrap this up, this might be a little unfair given that the entirety of this podcast has been devoted to one very big idea of yours, but it is called Bikes and Big Ideas after all. Do you have another one to share with us? Yeah, I do. So I listened to a bunch of your episodes and I'm, a, I'm quite the fan. And, and so I'm aware that you ask this question every time if people have a big idea. And uh, I did a bit of thinking earlier about this. So I do have a, an idea that I'd like to, sh- to share with folks. So often, there's especially recently been quite a bit of, of uh, media coverage of the topic of the bike industry and bike companies, um, the, the emissions of, of bike companies and trying to reduce those emissions. And you've, you've even had uh, interviews, if I remember correctly, there's like one where there's quite a bit of conversation about carbon offsets and, and planting trees and things like that. And... Um, all these things are really great. Like, um, like for example, Trek recently having the a, a really public report about their emissions, and uh, and concluding that you know they want to do things like uh, reduce the amount of of, uh, of air travel that they that they use for moving their bikes around and, and things like that. Like, I applaud these things. This is all like great intentions, but given the importance of the the of climate change of that problem. I don't think these these things in general are enough. Like it's not uh, it's not sufficient, really. Like the the amount of of emissions reductions that we need are huge to 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 avoid crazy risks of like runaway climate change. And an idea that that uh, I think should get more attention um, for for really properly tackling this this uh, this problem is putting a price on pollution. Or more specifically, putting a price on greenhouse gas pollution, so that when people buy a product, that the the price of that product would be adjusted based off uh, the uh, the the amount of of pollution that was caused by the product, um, and that way people are are they're they're economically like incentivized to buy the thing that that has less pollution. And like for example of how this how this works for people who aren't familiar, like if you have a product. Like, yeah, going back to how I was saying that I want to do local manufacturing. So a big part of why I want to do the local manufacturing is because of the environmental benefits of the local manufacturing. And so let's say I'm manufacturing locally in, in North America, um, somewhere where there's, you know, a lot of hydropower or nuclear power or whatever, where you don't have all the emissions. And, um, and you also avoid the, the, the emissions from the shipping. And then say that I'm making a product and it costs $10. And I'll say um, that exact same product is manufactured overseas, for example, in China, um, where you'd have a whole bunch of coal power or, or primarily coal power that's, that's powering the manufacturing. Plus you have the emissions from, from the shipping. Now say that the, now say the product in, in, uh, yeah. So say the product in China costs $10 and actually, actually, yeah, to make this example more understandable, let's say the product that's made in, in North America actually costs $12 because you have the extra cost of, you know, it's, it's not as, uh, you don't have the cheap labor wages and, and all that of overseas. Um, so let's say it costs $12 to make the product in North America and $10 overseas. Well, if you have enough of a price on the pollution, the price of the thing that's made in Asia could, for example, increase to $13 so that the price of the thing that's, that's made locally uh, is actually lower. So people are actually 
financially incentivized to buy the thing that's locally made. Like they don't need to have some some uh, good intentions. Um, you know, they don't need to. Re- you, we're not relying on their good intentions for for the uh, for avoiding the the environmental impact there. And um, so that's that's a point that I'd like people to grasp more. Is that like the approach of just relying on good intentions is is not going to solve things. It's like, it's not enough given the scale and the challenge, the difficulty of this problem. It's not enough to rely on good intentions. Like we need um, like systemic change, like system level change in our society so that people, uh, people are just by default will, will tend to uh, do the thing that's less uh, environmentally impactful. And so often a counterpoint that, uh, that people make to this, um, to this idea of, of putting a price on pollution is, well, you know, that, often it, it turns out to be a tax, right? Some people call it a carbon tax. And often people are like, well, I don't want to pay more taxes. But the, the thing is, um, you don't need to have uh, people paying more money to have the system. So for example, in, in Canada, approximately 80% of, uh, of, uh, of people actually are better off financially because of the carbon pricing system. So that means that 80% of people actually... Um, get more money from the system than it costs them because the government returns all the money to the people, all the money from the tax, they return it to the people. And so it's only the really heavy polluters that end up paying more money uh, than uh, end up having less money, right? That ends up costing them. Um, and so that, yeah, so that makes um, that concern a, a non-issue. Like uh, people won't be financially worse off and you can still have that economic pressure for people to, uh, to, um, to, to, to buy the things that cause less pollution. Um, and, now, tying this back to, to bikes a little bit here, um, I think that, you know, the, the bike industry is like, of course, bikes are, are can be super environmentally friendly, uh, in particular for commuting, for example. And so the bike industry is, is full of people who are, uh, yeah, even if they don't commute by bike, even just being a mountain biker and spending so much time in nature, you know, you kind of want to protect that nature. And so the, the bike industry and, and bikers in general are like, there's a ton of, of us who are super uh, environmentally conscious. Um, and so I think as an industry and, and uh, as a group in general, I think there's a lot of potential for us to put pressure, like collectively, like collaborate and put pressure on governments for having like proper um, uh, systems for, for pricing greenhouse gas pollution. There's a lot in there, but I like it. I mean, and the note about just it being in everyone's best interest to really tackle this problem head on, I think is spot on you know a few dollars here and there is on a potential carbon tax is nothing compared to the potential costs of inaction and so i am all for it awesome (laughs) this has been a lot of fun and thanks for coming on cedric and we are super super excited to see where this goes i think it's a very promising development in the bike world and really just applaud what you're going for here it's awfully impressive so Thanks again. This has been great. Thanks, David. Bye. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you enjoyed this conversation, then please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Cedric for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.